Welcome to the Indigo Podcast, an exploration of human flourishing at work and beyond. I'm Ben Barron of Indigo Anchor and Cleveland State University. And I'm Chris Everett of Indigo Anchor. For more information, please visit us at www.indigopodcast.com. Awesome. So today on the show, we've got Marissa Carson. We're going to talk about the turbulent workplace and talent management implications. We'll talk about how Marissa, who is an organizational psychologist, ended up working in talent management. Um, We'll talk about what the heck talent management is. Um, We're going to talk about how the workplace is changing amid COVID and other social shifts. And then we're going to talk about implications for talent management in the future. That's right. I'm so excited that we're having this opportunity to talk with Marissa. And let me just tell you a little bit about Marissa Carson. So she's currently the vice president of talent management at a large financial services company. She's done talent management work there for about seven years. And previously, she held consulting roles at Conexa, IBM, and a smaller boutique firm before that. She earned her master's degree in industrial organizational psychology and PhD in organizational science from the University of North Carolina at Charlotte after earning a bunch of other degrees. So she's been around doing a lot of these, uh, uh, a lot of other education as well. And uh, we are just so pleased. And um, I just want to give Marissa a warm welcome to the Indigo podcast. Yeah. Say hi, Marissa. (laughs) Hey, thanks, Chris. Thanks, Ben. That was a very nice introduction. What's easy when it's somebody as smart as you are, Jeepers. I just, I was a consultant. (laughs) Let's not confuse going well, to school. Well, I, I was and a consultant smart, at IBM, right? a very small, <laughs> ill-known consulting firm, and I like do all this banging stuff at huge organizations. So, uh, whatever, Marissa, don't don't lie to our listeners. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I'd like to start off with this. Um, just this, give us a little bit of an idea of how you, an organizational psychologist. Uh, ended up working in the world of talent management. And just tell us a little bit about you and kind of how you ended up there. Yep. Yeah, so my passion throughout all of my career and the various degrees has really been for leadership development. How do we help people go from where they are today and figure out how to continue growing personally and doing a better job leading organizations? And it's that passion that led me to some of the consulting at first, and that really took me into TIAA and the world of talent management. And when I think of, it's kind of a vague topic, what is talent management? I've often been asked, oh, well, then do I help? Am I like a placement for athletes? Do I help? (laughs) (laughs) Is that really what I do? No. And I'm an organizational psychologist, but I'm not organizing things. We're helping people. But you hold on, though. You are very organized. organized. I've known you for a while. Yeah. How much to get Aerosmith at my birthday party next year? (laughs) Oh, I can help you. (laughs) I am very organized, but that is not what talent management is. And really, it's about helping people to be better at work and helping companies to do a better job of investing in and supporting their people. And that's what gets me excited. That's kind of the thread that's been throughout my career. And it's really core to the work I do today. Yeah, but that, let's go before that. That's so, so you're a, a young person. Your dad's a psychologist, right? He is. Right? And, and yes, you first went into psych. So to, how did that even evolve? <laughs> 
poor advice and bad decision making. <laughs> a, a, a late night with Jose Cuervo, how I got into psychology. <laughs> exactly. Now I think I would guess many psychologists, it's a passion for people, really a desire to understand what makes people tick. And I was raised with that. I know I've shared this with Ben previously. I grew up with Sunday family <laughs> meetings where we did things like set personality tests. My mom would get out this personality for kids book and we would have to do our personality test in advance of the Sunday meeting and then come talk about our personalities and what that meant. And I don't know another person who had Sunday family meetings like no, that. No, that's just for the record. That's weird. Like not that or, or unusual, unusual, indelible. <laughs> Normally the parents who are shrinks try to hide the shrinking, but here they're straight up like overtly oh, yeah. shrinking it. Come to the Sunday. Yeah. <laughs> oh no. The shrink of the family was trying to hide it. It was my mom who was like, well, we've got a psychologist That's here. Awesome. Why aren't we psychologying our kids? <laughs> so yes, it left its mark. I went into psychology. I originally thought I would go into educational psychology and be much more involved in ed policy and kind of shaping the mm. future and history, uh, future of education in our country. Um. And then realized I wanted to make more money than that. So yeah. business psychology seemed to be a good fit. Yeah, yeah. And that's, uh, you know, this this field of industrial and organizational psychology is often sometimes referred to as business psychology or workplace psychology or occupational, right? Um, because it has to do with with the workplace. So, um, so you went from that, uh, you know, original aspiration of potentially going into educational psychology into more organizational psychology. Um, and then, how, you know... What was that like and, and what what kind of led you to pursue the career that you have, have now crafted for yourself? Um, a lot of that started really with graduate school. So I went into graduate school and was sort of open-minded about whether I would go on to become a professor or practice and use the skills that we were getting in grad school to help in actual organizations. I always had a little bit of a lean that I really wanted to do something that was applied, that I thought it was important to be making a difference and to be helping people in the world of work. Um, and the experiences I had during grad school helped to reinforce that. So had a number of internships with different companies of a variety of sizes, uh, got to kind of put the skills of understanding organizations to the test during grad school. Uh, do some really interesting work, like globally looking at leaders. And all of that really shaped my desire to go on and work in large organizations and be able to make an impact on the lives of employees at large organizations. The other part was our program was not just psychology, but we also had sociology and business. So there was this perspective for the bigger picture of organizations within communities mm -hmm. within larger social structures. And I think that part is equally fascinating. It's not just all the people that are in organizations, but how do we structure organizations yeah, yeah. and think so, about um, really creating the right environments for people to thrive? Yeah. So you go, you go from there. So you get your IO psych stuff and then, and then you, do you go straight to IBM after that? 
I did not. I was at a consulting firm that was really a startup right out of grad school. So it was an internship that turned into a full-time gig with two founding partner partners of a startup firm based in Charlotte. And I got to see all the ins and outs of a startup. I mean, we basically said yes to anything anyone would pay us to do in the vast realm of talent management. <laughs> You're like, yeah, we'll even mow your lawn after this engagement because <laughs> we, we got yes. rent to make. <laughs> yes, exactly. But it also involved the business side of like the startup. So we were developing our own intellectual property. We wrote a book. We were publishing white papers developing our website. So at the same time that you're trying to sell business and then execute that business, and you're both familiar with this, it's how do we also stand up mm -hmm. the core of our business yeah. and the foundation and what that's going to look like. So it was a great experience. Yeah. And so then you moved on to Conexa, which then became part of IBM, a much bigger world. Um, what was that transition like? You know, it was a welcome transition at the time because I'd been working from home and really coming out of graduate school, uh, loved the experience I got, but was craving a bit more by way of a social network in our field. And so coming into Conexa, it was a firm comprised of IO psychologists and mm -hmm. especially my group. I was in the assessment practice. It was a whole bunch of people who had a very similar background that I learned a ton from and really had a chance to grow there as a result. So it was, um, it was a nice change of pace. That position focused specifically on really assessment development. And we were working often with large firms that were doing high volume hiring to develop pre-employment assessments for them. So if you need to fill thousands of call center roles or thousands of retail roles, how do we help you screen through applicants, do that in a scientifically valid way, yeah. but also very efficiently? Yeah, because if it's ad hoc, you can get sued, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? right? You know, you can't, right. these assessments that you take, you know, get, you know, I remember coming out of high school and be like, okay, well, or college, I'm, I, you know, I worked at Dell Computers Call Center. And, you know, you go down and you fill it. The, the application seems so trite. But now that I'm on the other side of this, and I look at these assessments. I'm like, actually, they were really good assessments, you know? <laughs> I mean, on the receiving end, you're like, oh, my God, the gauntlet. I better get this job because I don't <laughs> want to do two more of these. But, um, yeah, no, that's really amazing work. Yeah. But, you know, I want to highlight, since you brought up the Conexa, mm -hmm. which then became part of IBM, um, you know, the probably the greatest strategy tragedy in the entire history of industrial and organizational psychology is the fact that Conexa no longer has their parties at our annual conference. I mean, we don't have annual conferences anymore either, I guess. But, um, <laughs> you know, when we used to, those people who have been around the Society for Industrial and Organizational Psychology, you know, for, um, you know, 10, 10 or more years, uh, you know, Remember the Conexa parties. Those were good times when we would, as grad students, sneak in there and um, and have fun. This is where you can find a... Yeah. yeah, this is where you can find a partner that's as bent as you are psychologically to, to settle down with. <laughs> Under the influence of booze and peer-reviewed paper presentations. <laughs> oh, goodness. I'm sure many a happy marriage started exactly there. <laughs> Not mine. It's possible. Say, but... It's possible. Yeah. So, 
You know, and now you've you've been in the in the world of uh, internal kind of internal consulting, right? So when I try to explain it to some people, there's external consulting, which is where you go to a, you know you work for a company helping them solve their problems. But being an internal consultant, kind of like you're doing now in talent management, is helping your own organization deal with its own stuff in internally, right? So you're doing that in talent management. And um, if you could tell us just a little bit about your progression within talent management and along the way, you know, help our listeners understand what what kinds of things fall underneath that umbrella of talent management? Sure. Yep. I've been with TIAA, you said before, about seven years and had a number of roles in talent management over the course of that time. So this looks similar. There's some variation in how people define talent management across companies, but I think in general, ours is a good example of what's typically under the umbrella. I started in talent management, really focused on our core um, competencies, including our leadership model. And really my first focus was establishing a foundation of leadership and functional competencies for the company. So basically defining what is what does good look like? What does it look like to be a good leader here? And depending on the type of job you're in, what types of expectations are there? What does good look like? That content is used as a foundation for hiring. It's used as a foundation for developing talent. So that was my entree to the work I've done at TIAA. I then went on to lead our talent review and succession planning process. So every year we take a look at who are the really key talent across the organization? Who do we see as our future leaders and do a lot of planning around how we're going to continue to support their development, move them into new and challenging roles, and at the same time, think about um, our leadership and where we might have gaps and be able to develop people further. So I led that process for a couple of years. I then served as a talent management business partner, which is similar in many ways to an HR business partner, which people are more familiar with, but it was really an internal consultant to the business. So helping our, at the time, our chief administrative officer and his team to structure their business effectively, to develop talent within their business, and kind of do all of the talent management stuff for that business. Um, And most recently, I am now leading our Talent and Performance Practices Center of Excellence. So our team has some of the favorite and least favorite processes for organizations. We do all the high potential development, career development. We also have performance management, which is a hot topic these days and uh, not always people's favorite topic. Um, but that's another piece of what my team owns. That's the review for our listeners, listeners that don't know. This is where you, you have an awkward conversation with your boss Yes. and <laughs> flip a coin to if, if it's going to be great or not. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, this is exactly how it's perceived. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, what's the, what's the best part of what you do? What do you like the most? So what I love and what's different from external consulting, which I was doing previously, is that we really have an opportunity to make a difference on the whole organization. The work we do touches every employee. And what's really satisfying, one of the favorite 
pieces of my job. And this is a very small, typically like over the shoulder responsibility is helping with career development coaching. But I often have conversations with employees just to talk about what they're looking to do in their own career, to take a look at their resume, to talk about jobs they've applied for or are interested in. And it's a really good reminder that the stuff we take for granted in the course of our jobs day to day, that's second nature about how to manage your career, how to put together a good resume, isn't actually such common knowledge. And I love being able to help in that way and thinking that on the bigger scale, some of the practices and the tools that we put in place really are helping people and maybe a um, helping them to get new jobs or new opportunities that wouldn't have otherwise been possible. Yeah, I appreciate that your organization is investing in this capability. This is not, guys, this is not common to this level to have somebody this qualified making decision that impacts thousands of lives. And, and you think about it, every single one of these employees has a story. They have hopes, dreams, a family. I mean, I don't know. Sometimes you get around all these like PhD nerd types and it's like, well, everybody's going to be tenured or work for some massive consultancy. And they, they don't know that there's like this whole human pantheon of experiences that are out there. And I just got to really commend your company for not only doing it. So that's the first step. Gosh, if you do it, you're already leading the pack, but, but doing it right with people like you. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, um, you know, when I think about things like high potential development, that's where you're trying to figure out who the next leaders of your organization are going to be and making sure that or hoping to increase the probability that they're going to do a good job when that time comes for them. And, you know, many organizations and large organizations usually give some thought to this. They have, you know, someone probably not someone as good as Marissa. Right. But they have someone that maybe is right. somewhere close, you know, but uh, they try. But, you know, for any organization that's trying to succeed in the long term, when it comes to the next generation of leaders within your organization, hope is not a good strategy. Like chance, don't leave this one to chance, folks. You know, this isn't just succession planning where you're trying to figure out, you know, okay, if the CEO gets run over by a bus, what are we going to do? Who's going to fill that role? This is about that right. more holistic idea of who's going to really be leading this organization in the future. So uh, fantastic stuff. And I think what's underestimated and not to be super nerdy about it, but that there's a science. No, be nerdy. That's what be we nerdy. do. That's what we do. So go I ahead. There's a there. science. Hit it. There's a science to it. And I think we all think of ourselves as good interviewers, right? I can spot talent. I could hire someone great. And what we know, what the research tells us is we're actually all pretty poor yeah. interviewers. We're pretty poor judges of talent. And when you factor in the science and really trying to assess people in a way that is grounded in our understanding of what good looks like, that uses assessment, that is based on what not only what good looks like, but tailors that to what good looks like in your organization, yeah. your odds of getting that bet right are so much higher. So we're not just, again, banking on hope. We're really implementing science to ensure that we've got a strong pipeline and that those leaders are ready and capable for the future. That's fantastic. So I'd like to turn our attention now to, you know, some of the interesting things that are happening with workplaces today and 
uh, you know, there's a lot going on in society. And then there's this thing called COVID, or as my seven-year-old likes to call it, the Rona. Um, certainly a, <laughs> certainly a, uh, a prevalent part of our thought this, these days and has had a dramatic impact on organizations and on the economy. Um, so, you know, I, what are some of your thoughts around how organizations have dealt with this? Certainly you have peers in the field. Um, what are your thoughts there? What are some things that maybe y'all did initially or uh, your thoughts around yeah. how organizations have done this? Yeah, it's been an interesting year. And starting back in March, I think the Rona really threw us all for a loop, <laughs> irrespective of your yeah. organization. It has fundamentally changed the way we work and what remains to be seen is how lasting that change is. But for this year, we're working in very new and different ways that we had not anticipated when the year started. So I can share and I'll share a little bit about how I saw our organization respond, what talent management did specifically, but say that we benchmarked a lot. I've been in close contact with a number of peers over the course of this year because as we all try to figure it out together, we're really facing many of the same challenges. And I see many organizations responding in similar ways. So the first thing that we did and that most organizations had to do was figure out how to stabilize. This is just through people for a loop. And there was such fear and uncertainty underpinning all of the virus and a need to stabilize our organization. I mean, we're a financial services organization. So our clients and the people we serve, their needs didn't go away. And in fact, the whole pandemic heightened their concern about their own financial future. So they're looking for us to be able to support them effectively, provide the service that they need during the pandemic, which required us to literally on a dime transition to remote work and be able to, without missing a beat, respond, set our call center up virtually, be able to respond effectively in a now dispersed virtual world. And I will say I'm really proud of our organization and I've seen many organizations do this. Something that had you told us at the beginning of 2020, okay, we're going to move everyone virtual. It would have taken us $6 million, and if we said we'd get it done in six months, it probably would have taken us nine. We did it on, <laughs> we did it on no budget and practically overnight and very effectively. Wow. I, I saw a meme on LinkedIn that said, who led your digital transformation? A, CEO, B, CTO, E, COVID-19. <laughs> <Spot on. laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. And we're probably more effective for it. Mm -hmm. It was really impressive. So you're moving the entire organization remote. And our, I mean, this is where like an organization's core values shine mm. or they don't. And we really lived up to our values in terms of valuing our people and putting our people first where we we're one of the very early organizations to say we're going to make people, we're going to move them remote with the exception of like those that absolutely have to be in the office. If you can do your job from home, you should stay from home. We want to keep our people safe. We have over communicated every step of the way, helping to keep people informed about um, what's happening, not just in our company, but in our communities 
and uh, steps that we're taking to support people, um, including not just our employees, but even where we've seen our employees with their extended family have, you know, family members who got sick. We have gone above and beyond to provide services and support to our employees and their families in those instances. So really just a very human-centered approach to managing this as part of stabilizing the organization. So we're working remotely. We are giving as much flexibility and grace to employees as we possibly can, recognizing the circumstances. We, like many other organizations, have taken steps to cut costs, recognizing that our financials look a little bit different. The world looks different. So we're trying to be really um, really thoughtful and manage risk appropriately. So we've also looked internally at how do we, where can we save money? And we did some really um, interesting stuff in terms of generating a campaign for employees to contribute those ideas. So not just our CFO or CEO saying, okay, let's just do some cuts. But we went to our employees and had an entire save to win campaign where we took their voices, their ideas, and implemented those and have saved millions as a result um, in a way that kind of took employees' input at the forefront. Yeah. So those are some of the initial things. So that's really cool. Yeah, I'd like to tease that apart a little bit because you know that's that's a fairly easy thing to do if you're in a, a small organization. Let's say you have a hundred employees. Yeah, you can pretty easily get some idea generation and, and actually have things bubble up to the top. But uh, your organization has a, a few more than 100 people um, as employees, of course. And uh, so how did, how did you get all that input and make sense of it? We had used this tool in the past. So we had a little bit of a benefit of having a tried and true methodology. Uh, we've used something called Spigot. I believe that's the actual vendor name. I don't think that's something yeah. we've named internally. Um, Is that like an internal uh, prediction market type thing? It's really more... It probably has other uses, but my familiarity okay. with it is that we've used it to gather basically to crowdsource ideas. And, and then, then people can vote them up, right? Vote them up. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So, so cool. really cool. Way. And you're right. We've got close to 15,000 associates. So it's a great way to gather that input, bring people together around the ideas that are gaining the most momentum and track that effectively. And then there was a very thorough process of kind of dispositioning those ideas. Here are the ones that we're seeing the most votes on. There was a process for evaluating feasibility and then determining what would be acted on. And we did that all very efficiently. That's awesome. So, I mean, you're networked with very senior people in this space, obviously, outside of your organizations. What, Without naming any names, what were some of the disasters or, hey, don't do this. Maybe their blood can help you make better decisions. What You got any of those stories? You know, I don't. And I don't mean for that to be a cop out. I think um, it's it's been so varied by industry. Hmm. And so the peers, many of the peers I'm benchmarking with, we're in financial services, we're in organizations that have the luxury of having employees work from home without mm -hmm. missing a beat. The few folks I've talked to who are in restaurant and hospitality industry, I think there are lessons learned from some of these industries that have been more hard hit. And I've heard it um, 
more anecdotally, uh, particularly in restaurants, just in terms of how you treat your people and uh, the the loyalty, that contract that some companies broke in the process mm. of figuring out how to stay afloat. Uh, that's probably um, the worst example of something I've seen happen over the course of this time. And it's really not, not recognizing that at the end of the day, your people are going to make or break you. And where you saw companies that did layoffs, they terminated people or did cha made changes to benefits um, pretty much overnight without much consideration for the folks who were working for them. I think that's uh, that would be what I would highlight. But I that was so few and far between. I mean, I think by and large, the companies we've talked to are doing their best to recognize and support employees through this yeah. while maintaining their business. So this has been such a an interesting time for organizations and for leaders to really test and grow their agility, their resilience. Um, and I'm just wondering, you know, either through things that you've done in your organization or uh, just general ideas and advice, what are some things that uh, you've seen that can just help leaders through these types of yeah. turbulent times? Um, so one is trying to decide where to start because there are a number of pieces. So I'm going to start kind of the mm. bigger picture and then hone in on more of the manager and employee relationship. But I think big picture, what is very helpful is for all leaders to have a clear sense of purpose and direction and a connection to that, that there's, whether you're working together in an office or you're dispersed, we're all continuing to row in the same direction. And it's easier said than done, but making sure that you've got um, clarity about your strategy, clarity about the priorities, and very clear and frequent communication as things change uh, is an enabler of keeping everybody on track and navigating these particularly turbulent waters. Um, from a leader perspective, the leaders who've continued to be most effective through this are those that had strong relationships with their teams prior. So they were checking in frequently. Uh, they had a good sense of what their teams were working on. And they are not just talking, but listening, right? That they're willing to take ideas, hear what's happening and respond to that. And one of the things that we really look to strengthen over the course of this pandemic, and we will do going forward, is that regular check-in between managers and employees, where if left to chance, it doesn't happen. So we're trying to be more intentional in encouraging leaders to ch touch base regularly. It's, it sounds so simple, but Five minutes, just check in and see what's going on. Ask people what they're working on this week and how you can support them. And it's that relationship that makes a lot of things in an organization much easier. Yeah, yeah. And those are fantastic examples and ideas. Uh, and, you know, one thing that we talk about here on the podcast is when it comes to a lot of these leadership behaviors, a lot of these different approaches you can take as an organization, you can't fake this stuff. I mean, people are going to see through it. And I think there's, you know, it, if you're a leader who genuinely cares about your people, uh, you know, that's where this 
oftentimes comes from and is, and is most effective. Um, now, some of us may need some reminders to help us understand, you know, this is how you can maybe show that you care about your folks and check in with them. Uh, but I think it's it's very, you know, it's important to, um, you know, to have the right leaders in place to begin with, because otherwise, when things happen, uh, you're going to be worse yeah. off, right? Yeah. And on that, that was part of our response as well, recognizing that for many leaders, managing virtual teams was a completely new experience for them. So shortly after we moved the company virtual, we really quickly developed a four-hour virtual leadership training that was focused on helping managers to lead with compassion and Mm. empathy and really um, navigate this time effectively in a way that was very different from how they might have been leading previously. Yeah, imagine that, leaders. Leading with empathy. And, mm. and you know, this is the thing is that we don't get these. MBA school focuses on productivity and a whole bunch of other stuff. And we met, and yet you go to anybody and say, what, what's important in a leader? The, you know, empathy, you know, being able to have a good theory of the mind. What, what are your followers going through during this time helps you apply leadership techniques that are appropriate to the mo- moment. And, and it doesn't, you're, you don't come off as tone deaf at that point when when people need you the most as a leader like normally as a leader you need your followers to do things so because you get evaluated on what you do but this is a time your followers they they really need you right and so i think that's a break and then and then you guys already have core competencies in place so that you could execute that kind of training plan it's, it's phenomenal so all right so you have the initial shock warning covid you guys make a massive, massive turnaround. They're impressive. Anybody that does transformation projects know that like this was a time when agility just had to happen, right? Mm-hmm. So, but now, now you're, and you've done the training. So things are developing for you as you start to settle in to the new normal. What it, What is the kind of ongoing rhythm for you guys right now as you're settled in into the new normal? Yeah, I think we're... Um figuring out how to maintain the new normal. There was, I think for most companies and ours, a lot of adrenaline back in March, April, and May, and a lot of willingness on people's part to go above and beyond to kind of make that switch. And now the question is, what does sustaining that look like? Because In many ways, some of the habits we've developed in making that transition aren't particularly healthy. I don't have the data from our organization, but I can say anecdotally what we're hearing is Mm. people are working longer hours. They're working um, atypical work hours, right? It's much easier to roll into your office with your cup of coffee and your pajamas at 637 in the morning. And suddenly find And you yourself... got kids at the house? <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> you might want to roll into the office at 6 30 if your yeah. kids are eating breakfast. Yeah. <laughs> I do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For sure. But that's what's happening, right? So it's much easier to work around the clock. Emails are being sent around the clock. And so we've seen this heightened level of activity that isn't necessarily sustainable. So we need to come back and ask, how do we revisit what healthy work habits look like in this virtual environment. We are um, also really looking at how do we promote internal mobility 
in this environment. So we've had lots of conversations recently as we do some reconfiguring as an organization, a huge focus on um, supporting development, moving talent internally. And as part of that, a question that has come up is about our location strategy. We're a global organization. We have a number of hub locations. And a year ago, we had a strong bent to have people in person at hub locations. So you would be able mm-hmm. to work from an office. Uh, we were actually thinking we were moving moving away from remote work. Now, we're on a very different end of that. And we're trying to encourage people to move into new roles and encourage managers to think differently about where their people work. And if they could have someone in a role who sits in a different state, for for example. So um, that's one of the pieces that we're evaluating currently that will have lasting impact on our organization over the years to come beyond, hopefully beyond COVID. Yeah. Now, is there anything that you would uh, say to leaders right now, either in your organization or other organizations, about things that they definitely should or maybe should not do uh, with regard to helping their workforce uh, continue to adapt and thrive? I think the should is um, they should continue to communicate. I mean, I feel like a broken record here, but some of this mm-hmm. stuff is just so basic. They should right. continue to communicate regularly about priorities. Uh, I think this may be unique in some ways, but not entirely. Um, really focusing as an organization on what matters and getting crisp about our strategy and the key priorities that are aligned to that strategy, and then making sure that everybody's rowing in the same direction toward that. That is, um, that's huge in being able to lead, period, but especially as people are dispersed and working a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all every all the gaps and problems are 10x, whatever, x amplified under the new work auspices, right? Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think there's a level of trust and this has been a challenge for some of our leaders. Uh, You used the word productivity before, but that has come up internally. So there's this tension between wanting to be flexible and supportive and wanting to make sure that people are continuing to be productive and that they're effectively delivering in their job. And I think there's a need, another should, there's a need as we think about what does it look like to do a good job, to think about outcomes and not just activity. What I've seen and I heard from some consultants we were talking to, there were companies through this that were entertaining some really interesting, but potentially problematic sources of data. Now that means bad ideas for those who don't have consultants speak. Yeah. Thank you very much, Senator. (laughs) It's as diplomatic as I can be about it. Let me tell you about some suboptimalities that may or may not be out there. Yeah. Just (laughs) numbskullery. (laughs) Just because you can track how many um, emails your employees are sending. Just because you oh god, I just threw up in my mouth. Track their use of WebEx um, or other social platforms doesn't mean that you should. 
And you've got to be really cautious with that data, right? I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but what does it tell me if people are on more? Does it tell me they're being more productive or just that they're more active? And so I think a watch out and something to be really thoughtful about in any environment, but especially this interesting remote environment is how do we think about measuring yeah. outcomes yeah. and not just activity? And it's hard to do. Some some organizations, some pockets of the organization, it's easy. You know if a salesperson is selling. You know if call centers, there are so many metrics you can track. But a lot of the work we're doing is knowledge work. And it's harder to really measure outcomes and not not just get bogged down in trying to think about activity. Yeah. Well, what's funny is there's this there's this um, delusion I think that some leaders have that oh you know because they're at home I can't really monitor them you know when they were here I could make sure they are doing work. Okay, really? Like this is this is you ever see the movie Office Space? Right? When he when he's uh, he says uh, if you haven't seen the movie Office Space. Stop what you're doing because you are not living a good life. You need to go watch the movie Office Space. Cult um, classic. It, it's awesome. So there's this there's this scene where they're talking to this guy and they're saying, hey, like, you know, tell me about a typical day. And he says, well, I normally show up a few, you know, 15 minutes late. I come in through the back door. So Lumberg, that's his boss, uh, doesn't catch me. And then I sit at my desk and, you know, then I just space out for a while, right? And they're, they're, the, the people asking the question are like, wait, what? You space out? He's like, yeah, it looks like I'm working, but I'm just kind of staring at the screen. I mean, you can do this. Like, you can get away with not working, but you look like you're working, especially in knowledge work. And therefore, if you think that people are just, you know, uh, at home, they're probably scorching off and not working, they may have been doing that when they were in the office anyway. And so I think your point is really well taken about, we got to figure out how, what does out look like for this type of these types of, of, of jobs and uh, um, don't go down the surveillance state route that's not helpful yeah and matter of fact if you're a manager out out there that that was kind of how you grew up like a lot of these guys they don't, they don't want to do that but they don't know anything else that's yeah. that's what they grew up under that's what they're doing you need to start reaching out for some better tools you know if you're like hey listen we just got to get to done on these three things if we can do that, like, I don't care if that takes you four hours plus messing with your kids or two hours plus messing with your kids that are at home. You, you start to get pragmatic. And this is one of the ways that, you know, when I talk about identifying high potential talent, thing that I coach, like people at the VP level to look for emerging directors is somebody say, hey, listen, I know you want these 30 things, but that's going to burn my team. We can do like this sprint once or twice, and then they're going to need a break or Hey, you know what? We can deliver this much capacity in this sprint, and and then we got to blow off some steam, or they have people at home. We'll start to lose people when you get that kind of. And it's not disrespectful pushing back. It's just saying, "Hey, listen, I'll do whatever you need me to do, but I need to let you know about the constraints and what that'll do to my people because I'm communicating with them, I'm staying in touch with them, I have empathy, I'm aware of their personal situations and how strategically important maybe some Azure cloud developer is or something like that. You know, these some of these hard to fill roles. Well, all of a sudden you look like a shining light on a hill. Everybody's else like, sir, yes, sir. And, and they will grind their people into a pulp and leave a strewn of turnover bodies out the door, hurting the organization. Turnover is expensive and hiring during this kind of pandemics expensive. But when you say that, when you have that strategic view, people that are savvy, especially in an organization like yours that has programs to identify 
high performance. I mean, it's like a, it's a giant light. They just stick out like, not like a bad sore thumb, but they, they stick out like, oh my God, that's gold over there. Let's get them on a strategic track to some senior leadership. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's a matter of being able to prioritize effectively, challenge appropriately, and influence the direction in a way that is going to ultimately have the biggest impact and be, um, as part of that, really thoughtful about your team and what people can accomplish and are able to contribute. So I agree with you. Right, because... The risk is when you come from individual contributor land, and this is for our listeners, a lot of them who are trying to navigate this ladder, you know, you're just do, 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 and you get rewarded for like, wow, you do 4X more than anybody else. But when you step up to that, you know, interview question, so why why do you want to be a manager? You know, sometimes it's like, I don't know, I want to make some more money. That that's not a good answer. That'll sound horrible to you, but it needs to be something about like, hey, listen, I've seen a lot of this. I've studied X, Y, Z. I think I could bring a unique skill set that would enhance both the individuals' lives at our organization, but also what we can contribute as an organizational team. That's that's a better answer for you. Write it down. Cliff notes. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's a typically in a very common, well-documented transition that people make in their careers, folks who choose to go on for leadership, that transition from leading self to leading others. And what we underestimate sometimes is there's not just a transition in terms of the type of work you're doing and how you get it done, but also where you derive your satisfaction. So oftentimes those high performing individual contributors, their sense of self-worth is tied to that delivery, that execution. I just did a really great job on this and I got recognized for it. There's a different way that you need to derive your satisfaction when you make that shift in leadership and you need to be able to switch to be able to be satisfied in your people getting that satisfaction, in your team being the one to shine, and you sometimes being behind the scenes, supporting, championing, guiding, and enabling, but not doing. Uh, Really the working through others versus doing. I think that's an underestimated shift that many, many people struggle with, a lot of the leaders we talk to. Yeah. So these are all fantastic nuggets of gold for uh, any leaders out there, any aspiring leaders out there, and certainly some really great insights um, regarding dealing with the big curveball that everyone was thrown with COVID as it pertains to the workplace. Um, You know, another thing that I'm curious about here, Marissa, is, you know, what are your thoughts or do you have any other, um, you know, insights or things that you're working on or that you're doing? just related to other things that are going on in our society and how our organizations play a role in all of that. You know, um, one big thing obviously is the, uh, you know, the, the ending of racism in organizations. So this is a thing that's near and dear to a lot of people's hearts. And uh, Chris and I are working, actually, we just got awarded a grant by the society for industrial and organizational psychology with uh, Enrica Ruggs and a really one wonderful research team to study this in more detail. If and you we'll miss sh- that episode, go listen to yeah, the Enrica go, go Ruggs listen to the ones episode. With Enrica. It's, it's awesome. And we're going to be sharing more about what we're going to be doing with that, with that grant and that project with all of our listeners. Um, but do you have any, uh, any thoughts around all of these issues? 
Absolutely. And congrats on the grant, by the way. Oh, thanks. If you're looking for uh, test data, we should talk. Yep. But Good, absolutely. we are. We'll hit you up right after this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. So organizations themselves are at a little bit of a turning point, and some recognized this earlier, but it is no longer the role of the organization to be neutral. Organizations can't be Switzerland, and I think this is what is very different for organizations these days. And our organization in particular has always been very cautious about if and where we take a stand on things. But there are some social... That's across all financial yeah. services. They're yeah. very, very reserved. It's risk averse, right? And they, we're serving a very diverse population. We've got people uh, of all different walks of life and all different communities around the globe. So there's this balance of not wanting to disenfranchise anyone or express a, be a belief that's going to be unpopular. But that's not okay for organizations anymore. And what we're really shifting to, and we're talking about it in terms of organizations as social change agents, and you're seeing it from a lot of organizations where we're coming out with a stronger stance on issues impacting our societies racial tension. Um, our CEO in particular has been very vocal in a lot of the work that he's doing. And this is communication, both internal and external. Um, we, I mean, I, again, I'm really proud of the work that we've done. TIAA was on the cutting edge of all of the diversity and inclusion movement. We have had uh, what we now, she's our inclusion and diversity officer. We've had that position for, I think, at least the last seven years, if not longer. We have had a team devoted to helping ensure that we're both showing up internally in a way that's supportive of all of our associates and really building diverse talent, bringing in diverse talent, and that we're educating our employees and being really thoughtful about some of these social issues that are impacting our communities. And we've just heightened that. We didn't have to start from scratch with any of it because we had the foundation, but we've heightened it. And I think that is something that more organizations are implementing and committing to and that we're going to see more of. Um, and even being more vocal, again, more vocal in communities about what we stand for and our values as a company and what that means in terms of our position on some of these social issues. Yeah. A lot of organizations have what I call pragmatic values. You know, most organizations, <laughs> oh, what, what are your values? Integrity. All right. Make us a competency, a model around integrity. Like, don't take pencils, kids. <laughs> Leave them at the work, right? You know, s stuff like that. So, but when the rubber met the meets the road on, we're talking about seeing into the future and creating the world that you want to live in rather than accepting the one that you find yourself in. This is what's amazing. And so to see organizations step forward in a bold way, that's awesome. I want to say two other things on that. One, in the past, organizations have made big banging pots and pans gestures that actually didn't help with the rubber meat in the road to drive to done on these critical tasks. Because you bang the pots, people are like, hey, they're banging the pots, they must be with us. <laughs> we'll, we'll ignore them now and go to the next jack wagon that's down the road, right? And, and then they got away without making any real change. 
I got to say, it's refreshing to see organizations actually saying, you know what? Let's be for reals this time. Let's let's really get it. And so that means like rather than having a token DNI, you know, a, generally a person of color in a position that had no power or budget other than, oh, we'll go talk to the local community group or a, or a um, ERG or something like that. We're actually seeing them getting budget and staff and support and a seat at the table. That's what you want. That's best practice. Now, the final thing I want to say at the end, these people are walking into an emergent area of practice. We've seen meta-analysis around implicit bias training, which, by the way, is a $6 billion industry in the United States. Of, and a lot of it's not evidence-based. It's just out there. And you can say, well, somebody... And, and, and these companies are not... The bigger ones generally have the budget and the staff to weed through some of this stuff. But for our mid-market listeners and stuff out there, you know, you want to do something good. So you interview some vendors, you pick, but you don't know how to select. And so I think we need to give some grace here as these organizations, because it's scary. And we don't have a mode for social redemption. What if what if a um, organization blazes out? I want to be out front on this. And they trip up some trying to get the done. We got to extend them the grace as long as there's hearts in the right place. And they're putting some resource and effort behind this. Our understanding of racism itself is evolving. It's not, you know, back in the day, 20 years ago, it means like, well, I, you know, every 30 minutes, I think negative stuff about people of color. That's not what it is now. We understand about structural issues. If you guys aren't aware of this conversation, you guys need to get plugged in through the Google. Start your journey. <laughs> like, it's okay. Like, you're not going to get there overnight. Slavery didn't get ended overnight. But but to that point, I'm, Marissa, it's, I know I get on these soapbox sometimes. I just can't stop myself, especially in a cancer like racism in the United States. So it's it's good to hear that you guys are, are leading the way in that. But I want to say to our listeners out there, don't be forming Twitter mobs and stoning organizations that are feeling their way forward as responsible as possible. Because some of the data we got on these bias trainings as some of it can make it racism actually worse. And if we want to first do no harm, we need to be calculated in how we move forward. Yeah. And I'll join you a little bit on the soapbox, a slightly different bent on do that. It. And I agree completely. I think what we're hearing in our society is a shift from racism as an individual thing to a true recognition of the systemic nature of racism and how it's baked into so many of our programs and practices and policies as a country, not just as an organization. And so as folks in organizations think about what do we do about it, part of the problem is thinking it's just a matter of training and that changing people's mindsets is a, is, is a fix for everything. And it's part of it. I think that training, if done well, and if really part of the culture of an organization, something that's constantly being talked about, is crucial. Whether that's about unconscious bias, implicit bias, I mean, there's all sorts of um, content out there that's really helpful. But if you're not also taking a look at how your practices and your policies might inadvertently be impacting different groups and creating disparity, you're missing the boat. 
So I think that's the hard work we have to do as a country. And it's the same hard work that organizations have to do. So just as an example, looking at hiring practices and thinking about if some of your minimum qualifications for jobs are inadvertently ruling people out who could probably do the job really well. Uh, something like a bachelor's degree, is that really a minimum qualification or could someone without a bachelor's degree do the job? That's just one example of many that we often take for granted some of these practices that are having a systemic impact on who gets into our organization and who's successful in our organization. Yeah, it's funny. We do, uh, you know, whenever there's a new test or anything that you're going to use, especially for these high volume types of hiring situations, we do a lot of work to try to make sure that it's valid, that it is linked statistically with job performance. And yet we oftentimes have these other barriers, like you just mentioned, the educational one. We take it for granted. It's like, oh, yeah, you know, this is a minimum of a bachelor's degree or a master's degree. Really? Have you have you looked at the data to see if that actually predicts anything? And uh, you know, it's funny hear me sitting here as a professor saying that you know maybe a maybe a bachelor's degree or a master's degree doesn't mean squat for job performance. In certain jobs, it might not. Um, and yeah, you know, half I, of these numbskulls go and get the piece of paper. And yeah. listen, I, you you interview junior talent at these organizations, and one of my favorite questions to ask, I'm like, hey man, you just finished four years of college. Name one cool thing you learned. It doesn't even have to be related to the, your classwork. Just you were there for four years. You're around a bunch of smart people. You did some growing. What? And you can't believe how many junior talents. So parents, if you got kids, make sure they get briefed on this, this question. But the, the thing is, it's like you were there for four years and you, you didn't have a, I mean, maybe you learned something about dating relationships. Maybe you had one professor at, at a gen ed that you thought was stupid but you decided to go out to Utah and how, hike Mount Zion National Park because you saw a, a, you know, a poster in the hallway. Yeah. I mean, there, you could, if you were asleep at the wheel, and I meet those guys all the time. So then when you go back to the job stuff, and it's like, you need a college degree. I was like, listen, not all these guys with college degrees were very awake or sober during their four years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, what you're speaking there too is what, what, what is education um, in terms of higher education? Is it uh, something that um, are, are you are you learning things exactly, or are, is it a signaling function to say that I got this piece of paper and I worked hard for a little while? Or my and parents are rich, right? I'm, I'm dumb as things. a brick, but I yeah. and I couldn't have done well, it, but they wrote a check. So I mean, and take it to the next level in recruiting when you look at some of these industries and even just pockets of financial services. They're not just saying we want a bachelor's, but oftentimes they're looking for a certain set of schools. We want yeah. somebody from one of these Ivies or these business schools. Yeah, like in Boston Consulting Group only hires from Dartmouth or something like that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that's not uncommon. So if you want to work there, you got to get into Dartmouth or no. <laughs> right, and who's getting into Dartmouth? So then you have to unpack it, right. right? To really see, well, what does that mean in terms of your pipeline? And automatically you're restricting it. And if your intent is to hire diverse talent, to bring people of color into your organization and your recruiting strategy is so narrowly focused on these organizations and you can't even really tell us why, you're working against yourself. And I think that's the type of analysis that organizations, that's hard work. It's hard because those managers really believe that talent is better. But how do you change that behavior? How do you change your policies and practices to be more thoughtful and open 
to bringing in the best talent, not just hiring from the school you think is great or or the school you went to, right? We see that often too. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. The similar to me bias, yeah. right? <laughs> so, so here's the thing. We're charging into this full. We're taking the same risks that a company makes. We didn't even talk that we were going to talk about this beforehand, right? <laughs> and, and if we made any mistakes and you're an expert out there on racism, write and let us know. We'll we'll put an amendment. But this is the kind of bravery that's needed because we're just, I'm flipping tired of it, you know? Like, I, ah! So, <laughs> if we screwed up, we'll add an addendum or edit this episode, let us know. But, you know, if you're in a position of influence or power, you need to start talking about this and, and leading the way and, you know, show a good recovery on mistakes as we fail forward to where we need to be. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, I guess if we kind of move on from some of well these, said. these things we've talked about already, um, you know, thinking more about talent management in the future, you know, one thing I'm curious about is whether or not, you know, organizations are actually going to learn from everything that we've been going through and continue to go through over these past several months. Um, you know, what are your, some of your thoughts around that? Are, are we going to let this, go, this crisis go to waste or are we going to, are we going to learn? And maybe what are some things that we could do to maybe encourage some learning? I think like it or not, there's going to be learning coming out of this crisis and <laughs> uh, some things that really stick that are really positive for the future of work. And I've touched on some of them already, but we'll highlight a few. I think the, um, the need to be nimble and agile was something that was coming up all over the place before, but takes on new meaning now for companies who are recognizing how that impacts their ability to respond to crisis and then to be effective in, in times that are normal. So um, that has implications for how company, companies organize and structure work. One of the really cool trends that had started before, but I think is going to gain some additional momentum, is about organizations and the gig economy within organizations. And I think this happens across as well, but organizations themselves, large organizations like us, haven't always done the best job of creating this gig economy internally. But the intent would be, we've got a lot of great skills out there. We typically place people with certain skills in certain jobs. But there are projects, there's work that comes up that we need to compile groups of people with different types of skills and just bring them together for a short period of time to execute. And so there's a lot of momentum around this kind of internal gig economy in the talent marketplace and how you better maximize um, and use the skills that you have internally to execute important work. I can smell the dollar signs, huge tech platform. And they're already <laughs> they're all over. There. If I, if I can think of it, somebody's yeah. already printing cash with it. <laughs> so yeah. be careful guys. There's snakes <laughs> in the grass out there, right? That they are out there. And there are some that are doing some really interesting work in that regard. Um, I've heard some of the consultants we've spoken with who really take a stance that, that the future of work is not about jobs, but it's about skills. And so where we've typically organized around a job description, it's really going to be about skills, which goes back to the whole conversation about what does it take to be successful and what does a career path look like? So anyway, I think that's a, um, a lasting 
change that had started before, but it's going to gain additional momentum as um, we kind of get into this new normal and figure out yeah, what the post-COVID yeah. environment looks like. I think, and I'll touch on this and we've said it repeatedly, but I think this also reminds us to invest in leaders and be thoughtful about what good leadership looks like. Because uh, particularly in when times are challenging, leadership matters. And what we need are people who are able to um, relate in a way that's empathetic, to bring people along, to help really galvanize an organization and keep people um, rowing in the same direction when times are challenging. And those same skills are just as important when it's status quo, when it's business as usual. We just don't typically put so much emphasis on them. But I think continuing to really focus on what good leadership looks like, how we invest in developing those leaders, and not just the cold, hard delivery, but the humanistic, empathetic side of leadership that's equally important. Yeah, that's fantastic. Any advice that you'd have for people who are looking for a job at this point? I don't know that um, I do have some advice, but I don't know that this advice looks different because of COVID or because of our current environment. I think there mm. are some best practices that are pretty enduring as it relates to job seeking um, that maybe are heightened a little bit now. But um, one of the best quotes I've heard came from a recruiter. And what she said was, it's not who you know or what you know, but who knows what you know that matters. Mm. And I really think it's a different spin on this idea that your network's going to get you everything, right? The intent of it isn't, it's all just about who you know. But the focus is really about your personal brand. Who am I? What do I bring to a job? What do I bring to an organization? And who else knows that? So that as they're out there hearing about opportunities, they're going to be the ones to think, oh, that would be perfect for Marissa that'd be great for Ben or Chris, because that is, and there's so much information out there that it can be overwhelming. And when you've got more people in your camp who understand what you're good at and what you're passionate about and are helping you to navigate those yeah. waters, you're that much more likely to be successful. And then I think being able to really articulate mm -hmm. your own value is crucial, period. That's now more than ever, maybe. Um, but I think really being able to say what you are good at in a way that is clear and indicates how you can contribute to an organization. And there's a whole <laughs> women versus men thing I could go into on this, but there's also a need to do that in a way that's authentic, but that gives yourself credit. And sometimes women in particular are mm -hmm. almost too humble. We don't always give ourselves the credit. And this happens on both sides, so I shouldn't pigeon <laughs> pigeonhole here. But really being able to speak in a way that is confident and uh, clear and um, present yourself and your brand is, is going to be in increasingly important. And if you're interviewing a female and she's confident, don't, and, and you're like, whoa, what is this? You know, be like, you should be like, heck yeah. 
That's the better answer there, buddy. You know, if you're like, well, wait a minute, would I accept this kind of answer or posture from a guy? Well, then it's equally good for a lady or a non-binary person or whoever, whoever comes through your door for an interview, you need to make sure you're equal and you're, and you're interviewing. Sorry. I have just some soapbox today. God, it's all over the place. Yes. Yeah, exactly. I'm really getting you fired up today. I like it, Chris. That's great. That's great. So what about advice for uh, senior leaders? Anything else that you would want to share for senior leaders? The piece that I've been inspired by through the last months um, among our senior leaders and that I think is good advice all the time is to listen and often to listen more than you're talking, right? To really try to understand what's happening around you, what's happening in your organization as a foundation for how you respond and the decisions you're making. And um, I haven't been through this experience with executive leaders at any other company, but I can say what stands out from the leaders that we have in terms of their response is that they allowed their emotion at times, they allowed their um, their heart to really show through in how we were responding and some of the decisions we were making. And I think that's often something that leaders feel like they can't or shouldn't do. Uh, but for so many, that was what helped to rally them, what helped them to put in a little extra when the days were crazy and to feel confident that we had the leadership at the helm that was really going to see us through this crisis. Um, and I don't, I don't think that's unique to a crisis. I think that's an important skill and something to keep in mind when times are good, just like when times are bad. Yeah. So today on the Indigo podcast, we had Marissa Carson and we talked about the turbulent workplace and talent management implications. We explored how an organizational psychologist ended up working in talent management anyway, you know, long for the days of psych tests <laughs> And the home space, right? Uh, how the workplace has changed during COVID and the emergent role of organizations in the social landscape. And then we talked about some implication for talent management in the future. Yeah. So Marissa, is there anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners? I think we covered a lot of ground today. I don't know that I have anything new or different to share, but really appreciate the opportunity to talk about this space, which I feel passionately about. Wonderful. So Marissa, just thank you so much for being a part of the Indigo podcast. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Indigo podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider helping us by rating us on Apple podcasts or wherever you listen, telling your friends about us, having us on your podcast or mentioning us on social media. Our website is www.indigopodcast.com where you can access more information about us and this episode. Thanks again, and we look forward to talking with you again soon.